This is Werewolf the Podcast, a podcast about the role-playing game, Werewolf the Apocalypse. D20 Radio, your gamer's role. Have you heard of high-level games? If you're a content creator looking to make your dream a reality, you need high-level games. High-level games does layout, editing, and development support such as Kickstarter and more. Even if you're not a creator and just want to enhance your game with exciting new supplements, go to highlevelgames.ca and check out Dark New England for V20. High-level games. We want to help you level up your role-playing game. Highlevelgames.ca Welcome back to Werewolf the Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Josh Heath, and today we are doing an interview about a set of books that I am excited to talk about. Uh, The Werewolf the Savage Age set of books has been out for uh, the Storyteller's Vault for some time now, and there are more and more products coming out about these books. And I am joined by two folks who can tell us a lot about these particular books and their content. Um, so, folks, can you introduce yourselves to our audience? Sure. My name is uh, Chris Gunning. I am the uh, lead developer for Weaponized Inc., which is the producer for Savage Age. How you doing? I am Brandon Stewart. I'm a writer on the Weaponized Inc. team for Savage Age. And appreciate you having us. Absolutely. I'm uh, Like I said, I'm very excited to be talking about this. Um, for folks that aren't aware of the Storyteller's Vault, have you been paying attention to the podcast? But um, the Storyteller's Vault is a repository of community content for anything in the world of darkness and exalted. Um, and there are some opportunities within that space to tell extra stories that are not included in the traditional world of darkness. And Savage Age, I will not steal any of your thunder. It talks about a period of time that is really interesting for werewolf uh or werewolf adjacent creatures uh, and their who they are and what they are and how everything plays out. So let me pitch it over to you and say, tell us what the Savage Age is and why people should be excited about it. Happily. All right. So Savage Age, the elevator pitch for Savage Age is it is werewolf the apocalypse set in the Stone Age, specifically the Pleistocene area, the Pleistocene era. Um, and uh, an estimated at least uh, about 4,000 to 12,000 years ago. It is our opportunity to explore the foundational questions that uh, for us arose when we were reading and we were playing Werewolf the Apocalypse. Where do the Guru come from? What is the nature of the animosity between the Guru and the Bastet? Beyond just because one is cat, one is dogs, We wanted to have uh, a history there, uh, a deeper exploration of who they are and why they are. Um, We go through each one of the Farah and explore their roots, their connections to each other, and who they were that makes them who they are in the modern nights. We've also taken a couple opportunities to explore alternate Farah. Um, we've come up with a couple of uh, our own, quote unquote, own um, Farah, uh, one of them being uh, direwolf shifters uh, and then another one that we just released, which is, and, and bear with me on this one, where <laughs> Dimetrodon shifters. Um, yeah, from 250 million years ago. And it's that one is an opportunity for us to really explore the deep history and how can we make um, characters from the, the origins of who the Farah were from the very birth of Gaia's idea into what the Pharaoh could be and make them relevant to both the Savage Age and to the modern knights. And that in a nutshell is, is what Savage Age is. Brandon, am I missing anything? I mean, I, that game sounds good to me. I'm, I'm a bit biased though, but um, no, I, I think you nailed it. Uh, it's a chance to one, look at a, you know, a setting that, doesn't necessarily have the same degree of saturation as say you know your modern or your medieval settings and we get to look at the war of rage not so much as a as a singular war but more of a 
a retronym for, you know, a series of conflicts that took place in prehistory and what that might look like and what are the politics and what's the landscape of that in a time where the gauntlet is much thinner, humanity is just now coming into its own. And so the deck has kind of shuffled a bit. Things aren't the way they would ultimately become in modern nights. So we get to put our own spin on werewolf and mix things up a bit. And that's awesome. a great point, right? Like we've got this, I'm going to jump in here, but um, like it's an opportunity for us to explore really what is it about being guru that makes them special right? in an era where there is no silver um, and where you can truly be a monster. There are some distinct advantages and disadvantages to that. You know, the initial reaction of, oh gosh, you could be a werewolf in an era where you have to fight with uh, stone spears sounds really, really empowering, but there's actually a series of dangers there. The other thing that we got to do that, that uh, Brandon mentions in terms of like switching things out, the wild is much more of a danger then. It's, it's not the victim um, that it's portrayed to be in modern nights. And so there's a different perception of the, the way that the triad works 5,000 plus years ago. Tell us a little bit more about that because that's what I'm I'm particularly curious about. How how is the triad presented? Uh, the wild it sounds like it's more of a uh, a concern, but what does that look like for the Savage Age? Sure. So um, that's exactly it. We've been able to play up the the wild more a bit in balance, and though not quite in balance. I guess we it's a better way to say the wild is stronger. 5,000 years ago. Um, the triad is still out of balance. The, the weaver and the worm are still generally what we understand them to be. Um, but the, the wild uh, presents much more of a threat. And it is much more on, when you're looking at it from the guru perspective, it's much more on their minds. It's something that they have to account for. So instead of just initially jumping to save the wild, which is one of the kind of automatic assumptions that you have, in Werewolf the Apocalypse, in Werewolf the Savage Age, uh, the wild you have to be much more careful about. The wild can be just as dangerous as the weaver or the worm, and in some cases can be more so, um, because so many areas of the world are dominated by the, uh, by the wild. Um, you, we also have a little bit of an opportunity to explore, in terms of the worm, um, we play around a little bit with the canon because we think it's more interesting, but we do have a little bit more of the uncorrupted destroyer worm floating around. And so not everything is corruption worm. Not everything is necessarily the triadic worm. We do have these opportunities. We take the opportunities to explore what that relationship could be when you still have destroyer worm elements, however diminished, in a world where the corruptor worm is still a thing. So there's this, we've referred to a couple of times as the wormish civil war. It's, it's dying down. The corruptors is nearly fully ascendant, but not quite. And then on the, the weaver side, um, the weaver is relatively weakened compared to the other two, largely because the explosion of civilization and agriculture has not happened yet. That's it, it exactly why we, we say 5,000 years ago, uh, to up to 13,000 years ago, that's when humanity really started to command things like agriculture, started to build towns, potentially a first city started to come around. The domestication of animals starts around that time. And obviously that has some really interesting implications for the Pharah, the Guru, the Bastet. So we do play around with the triad a little bit. It's, it's different. And that's part of what makes Savage Age a bit of a different experience than uh, players that are familiar with werewolf apocalypse uh might expect uh, one of the things that um i've enjoyed kind of riffing on is um and I, I forget what book it was originally printed in but there's a story called the first clave in one of the old uh, werewolf books and it talks about them encountering famori and not necessarily fully understanding what it is that they're dealing with because they're not nearly as ubiquitous as they would become. And also in this time period, you know, populations are much more sparse and spread out. So you could very easily go your whole life without ever encountering, you know, too many other clans of people. And so we're at a time where the corruptor worm isn't necessarily fully understood, which in some respects makes it even more dangerous. 
but then you have the wild, which I, I liken it to like the kudzu plant where the wild is not a corrupted thing, but unrestrained growth ultimately can, you know, strangle you and become a very serious problem. So sometimes it falls to the pharaoh to actually be wild tenders and to control that growth. So we've got an opportunity for folks to have, if not antagonists, then obstacles and concerns that they might not otherwise have in modern nights. Awesome. So it sounds like, and from what I understand about the setting, the Garu as a singular nation or even a singular uh, species of being aren't quite put together as a singular group at this stage. Is that right? Am I understanding that correctly? 100%. So I should put a caveat here for your listeners at this point. Um, we do play a little bit around with the canon for Werewolf the Apocalypse. So if you're a hardcore purist uh, in terms of, of the canon, um, Savage Age may be a bit of, a, of, of an acquired taste, let's say. Um, what we have done is in some cases gone through the canon, like the formation of the, the Guru, and ex- change things up a little bit um, in an opportunity to deepen the story and to explore different themes and opportunities in terms of the stories that can be told. Um, as you were just saying, Josh, so we have it that the um, the Guru, the Guru Nation is a political and social construct, not necessarily a biological one like it is in, um, in Werewolf the Apocalypse. And so for our history, multiple types of canid pharah exist. There's jackals, there's werewolves, um, there's a, a whole series of other types of like sub wolves that exist. There's were cape hunting dogs, if you're familiar with the, um, um, the African hunting dogs. So these different canids um, existed on their own and in our timeline are forced together because of the War of Rage. And in fact, the War of Rage is the cauldron that creates the guru as a nation. It brings these, the various canid pharaoh, most of them, together and uh, as a defensive maneuver. And we present it as a very innovative, possibly the first real um, collection, political um, organization of its type uh, of either human or pharaoh. And it allows the guru to not only ultimately survive, but to excel. So one of the other, um, the, the pharaoh that we invented are the Welewa, which are were cave lions. And we present them as the greatest threat that the guru actually ever faced, um, along with the other Bastets. But the, these were cave lions were um, very effectively killing out a number of the European canid pharaoh. At the same time, over in South Asia, we had the Grandeur and um, the predecessors, one of the branches of the predecessors of the Red Talons, having uh, a series of wars. And these these separate conflicts eventually converge, forcing the Guru to come together and eventually coming out on top. Um, and, uh, And we really like some of the opportunities to explore the story where you have an opportunity to um, to to have these different canid pharaoh, to have the progenitors of the silent striders and the progenitors of the silver fangs coming from vastly different cultures and in fact different biological backgrounds coming together and having to learn to work together and forming the very embers of what the Guru Nation will eventually become. And one of the other things that we find we we kind of explored and found interesting. Um, in our in our timeline, the Guru also put out the call to other pharaoh, in particular um, the Garal, and most of the Garal turn it down, recognizing that there's an inherent danger in what the what the Canids are doing in creating the Guru Nation. One of the Garal, the where cave bears, um, do answer the call, and so the Guru Nation isn't just exclusively Canids; it's also there's a strand of um, where cave bears that uh, are there. We call them the Saksum Aknami. And so it's an opportunity for us also to show that multi-fera stories are embraced in Savage Age. That is really cool. Um, Just, I like, I've always liked the more political function of the Garu Nation as a system. It seems to make sense. The 
problems with some of the the biological determinism of uh, of werewolf the apocalypse is one of my issue areas with the game. Uh, it sounds like you are sidestepping that, or at least exploring some of those elements in different ways, yep. which is yeah. I find interesting. Absolutely. Yeah, I, and that was one of the reasons we started this. Actually, Josh, I think you and I probably have a similar vision. There are, I, you know, all of us and anybody listening to this game probably deeply, deeply loves Werewolf the Apocalypse. And I really do. It's one of the first games I, we, I remember the first time I, I held the original soft cover with the rips in the cover. Um, and, and I still have that copy. Some of those things have not aged well. And this was our opportunity to kind of deconstruct those things. So, you know, um, the nature of the Black Furies in some cases has, has some problems to it. The nature of the Get, from my perspective, have some problems in some of the story that has been built up around it. So this allowed us to kind of strip that stuff away um, and build these proto-tribes that you can still explore very similar stories, but we've ejected a lot of that baggage that sometimes kind of made things a little bit icky. Um, and so, and it gives you an opportunity to, to explore the commonalities in some cases. So the Belai are one of, we call it tribes just for ease of reference. And the Belai are the ultimate progenitors for um, most of the Western European Garut modern tribes. So that includes the Gets um, and includes all the ones uh, from the British Isles. So the Fianna, the White Howlers. Um, and so we, we show that there are some connections there uh, that, you know, the, 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 the historical or the things that we're used to in terms of tribal animosities, when you go into Savage Age, they don't necessarily exist or they're just starting to percolate. We put these little Easter eggs in there for people to explore, but we show that, you know, um, the Fianna, the White Howlers, the Get, they have a lot more in common than uh, sometimes Werewolf the Apocalypse uh, allows us to, to really explore. That's awesome. Um, it makes me think too that, you know, the Indo-European peoples have a root uh, a connection with one another. And if you're going back to the time frame that you're talking about, that's all prior to Indo-European diaspora. So these people wouldn't be an excessively separate group of people anyway. Um, so that ability to say, hey, if they're coming from a common route, what sort of commonalities do they have? And then what are their internal problems, which it sounds like being able to create those Easter eggs and let people percolate on those ideas is an interesting idea. Um, but tell me more about the Farah groups within uh, the Savage Age, because there are quite a few of them. So tell me about any exciting things that you can about the different Farah groups that are involved. And just to backtrack slightly to what you were just saying, Josh, one of the, one of the things that, because I, I came in around uh, volume three, so I was a, a fan first and I like, we have the good fortune of so many people on our team have these backgrounds in anthropology and geography and they they're able to bring there's a you know talking about the different uh, locations where the different types of pharaoh and their cousins would be found there's a certain verisimilitude and realness that it brings to the world that i think is really cool that they it makes it feel like a real place and you can kind of explore that and there's a lot of good story potential there but anyway i um as far as our different Farah, we run uh, the Apis, which um, they, those are the Were Aurochs, and we've opted to run with them as a sort of, uh, would you say, social engineers, Chris? Um, yeah, that's 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 one hundred percent. So um, part of the Apis, we you know, those are not ours; those were originally conceptualized by White Wolf. Yeah, um, and the the social engineering part, I'll say, we we were originally talking about this. If you're familiar with the game Traveler, there's a race called the Hivers, and um, Traveler has moved a little bit away from this, but the Hivers were this, these like massive social engineers that operated on timelines that were so expansive, other races had a hard time uh, understanding what they were doing, and then all of a sudden their grand plans were revealed. The Apis, the Apis do this in Savage Age. They're taking this really expansive view of, of history and timelines, and so we, we kind of explored, you know, they were gay as matchmakers. 
which on the surface is kind of interesting and, and can be explored, but we we changed that a little bit and like matchmakers in the sense of like generational histories um, and what that potentially means for the formation of other pharaoh. That's really interesting. Sorry, I'll let you continue, but I, I like the sounds of all of that. Um, another one we have is the Cyberock, which um, the, the name itself comes from uh, some of the original White Wolf books where they're written up as sort of a, a rejected offshoot of the Silver Fangs. We take a different approach, and the for us, our Cyberock are actually the progenitors of what will ultimately become both the uh, Silver Fangs and the Shadow Lords. They are the, the common ancestor there, and I know the way I've approached it in, in my writing is that that's something that in modern Nats, neither side, if they're aware of it, they don't particularly want to own that. Sure. That, I cannot imagine those conversations being so, like, we come from a common ancestor. Mm. So not, not only do they not want to acknowledge that name for common ancestry, they're like, no, no, that, that, that word means these, these bastard wolves over here. That's nothing to do with us. So I, I, I enjoy that. One of the, the running things in our stories is we, we theme a lot of our fiction our, um, around oral tradition because that's what you would find at the time. And they tend to begin with the line or some riff on this story is true. So we kind of get to play with the nature of how stories can change as they're passed on and change in the telling and how for political reasons, maybe this tribe might not want you to hear this particular story or to know it in this particular way. But um, uh, as far as our other pharaoh, one of the ones that we released not too long ago is the Urkama, which are our werebats. These are the ancestors of the modern knights, Kamazots. And they are... They are the uh, bulwark between us and the things that go bump in the night in the deep umbra. For any Mage of the Ascension fans out there, I've sometimes likened their role to that of latter-day void engineers. They, they are mandated by Gaia to secure the, secure the gauntlet and protect us from, from things that would otherwise want to come through. And this is at a time where the gauntlet is exceptionally thin. You know, like Chris said, the weaver is kind of on the outs right now. So they're a case of that they ultimately meet their downfall because they have this secret mission that they don't want to tell anyone about. So we get to play with the tragedy of the Kamazots as being something that ultimately makes things harder for the Garu because once there's no one to guard that door, then things can start to come through. Awesome. They in particular so, were one of the ones I was interested in. So thanks for talking about them. Go ahead, Chris. I was going to say, so one of the other concepts that we have at, as the core of Savage Age, it's a little bit different than Werewolf the Apocalypse, is that every Pharah has a Gaian mandate. And this is, this is actually coming from... Um, uh, werewolf the forsaken to some extent it was an idea that i think uh was was particularly genius whoever came up with it so we've we've taken and we've ported it over to savage age so every pharah um has this mandate that gaia specifically gives them and helps define who they are however not every pharah follows that gaian mandate particularly well some, uh, it is the core of who they are and how they define themselves and how they see themselves. Others, they have strayed slightly or significantly from what their gay and mandate may have been. And so, so Brandon was just mentioning um, about the Urkama. One of the things that we explore also in terms of Savage Age is as the guru become more and more powerful and as they start to force into, into extinction other Farah breeds, these gay and mandates are left open and almost like a biological niche, the guru grow into them, but they were never designed by Gaia to fill these niches. And so like, like what, uh, just like what um, Brandon was saying in terms of, you know, protecting the, the, the Gaia from the deep Umbra, this was what the Urkama were designed to do. And because the guru eliminated them, they have 
by default inherited this mandate and they're not particularly good at it. They're okay at it, but they the more that they have done this, they've eliminated the Apis, they've eliminated the Grandeur, they eliminated the Welewa. Um, there's others that they have forced into near extinction. And so they've, in our interpretation then into the modern nights is that the Guru and the Litany actually come from this hodgepodge of gay and mandates that they have either inherited or depending on how you're approaching it, outright stolen. And so the guru in the modern nights look around and say, this is our, this is our mission. This is what we are supposed to do. This is why we are gay as cho chosen. And it's part of the myth that they have created about themselves because they have done these other acts in the past um, and they're doing their best. All these gay and mandates they've inherited. So now they're trying to, you know, protect the liminal areas of the world. They're trying to guard the, they're trying to guard cares. They're trying to um, protect the, the deep umbra. They're trying to do all these things. Um, and they're not, they're not the right tool. And that's part of the reason the apocalypse looms. Thematically, one of the things I've always found in werewolf is, uh, hubris being a recurring thing you know a lot of the books talk about how if if they could work together if they could get past their rage and organize better instead of just lashing out at you know the symptoms rather than the root problem they could get a lot more done and i see that kind of going both ways here in the savage age because on the one hand with these guy and mandates a lot of uh pharaoh rather than looking at it as this is our responsibility and our specialty they get this attitude of we are the only ones that can even be involved with this. Uh, only our opinion matters. Uh, no one else should even touch this. So you get things like the Walewa deciding that we are the arbiters of all secrets. And in fact, we get to impose that on everyone else and decide for them. And so like with the Irkama, we have to protect uh, everyone from the Umbra and they can't know what's on the other side. And then with the Garu, you have them, you know, waging war on these different pharaoh without necessarily a whole lot of forethought to the role they play in that ecosystem and what's going to happen when they're gone so on both ends of things you have decisions being made that ultimately make things worse for everybody yep misinterpretation and mistakes are a major part of of the savage age and of the roots of the war of rage um this There's enough shame to go around Right. And, and like this misinterpretation of what the Urkama were doing. They were super secretive. They were flying off into the deep umbra. They're, they're coming down and telling us that, us being the guru, that we've got to protect these areas. Who are they to tell us this? The whole time the guru don't know the actual war that the Urkama are fighting. They don't know the sacrifices that the Urkama are making because the Urkama don't trust the guru or the Canid Pharah to be able to hold the information that the Urkama have, have carried for generations. And so this gulf of information between the two pharaoh ultimately leads to the conflict and the near complete extinction of the Urkama at the Guru's hands. So why did the war of rage start? Do we have a good answer for that? Like, why are the Garu doing this? What is their goal? So it, it is, there is a good answer. It is a complicated answer and it's a nuanced one. Um, so what happens in our story is that there are the Kucha Sakurai, which are a branch of what will eventually become the Red Talons based in South Asia. So India, uh, Bangladesh, uh, Tibet, that part of China as well. Um, and, and so they had a long running generational war with the um, with the grandeur, uh, because of actual conflicts and friction over gay and mandates, and these conflicts led to dead children. It led to um, it led to you know dead spouses and misinterpretations and holding of grudges over so many generations that eventually it became a war of extinction on both sides that neither side could see a future where the other one existed. And so they come into this, this slow but determined war against the existence of the other. And it becomes so dire for both of them that they start calling in favors. The Grandeur look to the Apis initially and bring the Apis into the war. The Kuchasakurai call to their, um, 
to their cousins over in Africa, the Kucha Akundu, which again, if you're familiar with the, the roots, the canonical roots of the uh, Red Talons, you'll recognize that name. And, and so they get involved. And again, over a series of generations, they start to develop their own animosities and hatreds. And so what ends up happening is these things continue to grow and grow and grow. At the same time in Europe, we have this conflict between primarily the Belai, who are the, the proto uh, Fianna, Geta Fenris and White Howlers against the Welewa, the Were Cave Lions. Um, and it draws all of these canid um, Fera into the Guru nation as a defensive pact. And it works for a bit and it works so well that the Guru eventually start to prosecute their own grudges. And that's really where the War of Rage becomes what we would recognize it as. It has these other roots in South Asia, in Africa, in parts of Europe. But it's this point where the Guru nation all of a sudden roars, in some cases quite literally, into uh, its own strength. And because of all of this history where the Canid shifters were victims, they've got these generational oral traditions where they have grudges and they can name their enemies and now they have the power to strike back and punish their enemies, but they don't know when to pull back. And, and so the War of Rage leads to the extinction of multiple other species um, as the Guru nation solidifies as a nation. Wow, that is a rife place for storytelling. Um, I know that there are elements of the Savage Age that people are bringing into their modern Werewolf the Apocalypse games. I'm, I'm talking to several people that have mentioned, hey, we're including this element from this book uh, in our story as, as background. And I think this provides an opportunity for not just storytelling in that era, but the opportunity for storytelling flashback stories or ancestral visions or just ideas and concepts that you can bring forward and say, what about uh, the Urkama? What about the, the shadows of that um, mandate that the Geru have now fallen onto? And how does that impact them in the future? Almost like a curse in, that, is, that, is, that is hung around their necks that they have to deal with. So I see a lot of opportunity there. Um, and that brings me that to That makes me happy. Like, <laughs> I, I, I apologize. But like, that's why this exists. We, I yeah. get not everybody is going to be comfortable playing in the Pleistocene era. There's a decent amount of, you know, people assume that they need to do some research to be comfortable with it. I'd argue you don't. We've, we've created a series of tools to make it as easy as possible to actually explore the Stone Age and the Pleistocene era, the Savage Age and the War of Rage. Um, but for a lot of people, it's going to be more comfortable to play in modern nights. That's where we, we all started. People taking elements out of Savage Age when people tell us about that, man, it's the best. That's why it exists. You've got these fetishes and tailings from 5,000, 6,000 years ago, from the very birth of the Guru Nation, back when the Bastet were really kicking butt. Um, and if you as a storyteller want to see that in and just kind of see what it does, great. We were just talking about how the Sabiric were um, the progenitors of both the Shadow Lords and the um, Silver Fangs. What happens if you put a fetish in there? that has those similar elements. Um, and maybe you have two characters from each one of those tribes. Let that play out. Let them explore that history. That is, that is part of the reason that we created Savage Ages, this opportunity to, on one hand, kind of uh, rationalize a little bit of, of um, uh, Werewolf the Apocalypse's history so that there's a bit more of a foundation to kind of explore, um, but also to specifically explore some of this deep time history stuff that I think Werewolf the Apocalypse is uniquely well suited uh, to tell stories about. And some, something I would add to that, because I I also have heard, I hear a lot of people talk about how, you know, hey, we use this for a, a flashback scene or we brought this uh, relic or this fetish into modern times to make it a plot point. And that, that is that is so cool to hear. And um, as far as how the game is presented, uh, one of the internal lines that we keep coming back to is, you know, it, it is a very mythic period. Uh, Gnosis is actually higher across the board in this time. 
And so we want, if you want to do the, you know, gritty game of fireside survival, we give you the tools for that, but you can also bring your favorite heavy metal cover album to life. We've got there. Uh, we actually have our own class of what we call legendary um, fetishes that kind of turn the power knob up to 11. So if you want to pull something from the Savage Age and use it in modern nights, a lot of times that mythic special feeling of having, you know, something ancient and powerful is already baked right in for you to tell your stories. Awesome. Um, I, I, it is always helpful in a werewolf supplement, particularly I would say from a storyteller's vault standpoint to have multiple ways to utilize it uh, because it gives you the opportunity to say, I'm, I'm going to buy this thing. I'm going to use all the different tools in the toolbox and different ways that they're presented to me. Maybe I'm going to just take one because maybe I just need a wrench today, but I'm going to use yeah. that in my game and then use other elements in other games. I think that is super helpful uh, and definitely a, a positive element of these books. We, we absolutely try to work with player option in mind because I, I know speaking for myself, a lot of times with different games, You'll read a, a setting or a game line and go, this is a really fun read. I have no idea how to play this. What does this look like? So we always try to throw out multiple options of here's how you might choose to incorporate X, Y, or Z. Here's an example of what that might look like. We want to make it as easy as possible to, you know, just get out there and have some fun. And to that end, we've got, um, we have built in a series of tools there. Brandon is the author of Broken Brother, which is a uh, introductory adventure. And, and we really try to put as many tools in there for the storyteller to feel comfortable to play uh, Savage Age. Um, so not only is there a great plot um, and a great nemesis, but we've got pre-generated characters in there. And then we also have a pre-generated community, basically, to be able to, to kickstart and jumpstart your exploration into Savage Age. Um, Speaking of, Josh, got, you have... Oh, I'm sorry. Ahead, I was going to no, say... No, no, was, no, no, Brandon. You, have a, you actually have a, a special thanks in that, Josh, because uh, you're the reason I knew that jump starts were a thing. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. Uh, so I, if you don't like Broken Brother, it is uh, Josh. It's all my fault. fault. Yeah, I will accept the blame <laughs> for that. <laughs> We've um, also got um, 101 Kinfolk, uh, which we did with Neil Litherland, and he's he's amazing. Um, and that was our opportunity to also show for storytellers, um, here's what the different types of kinfolk you can to uh, seed into your games. They come from each one of our ferrotypes. Um, and I think we've got 13 that are going right now. So there's all sorts of different types of ferro, different types of background that you can seed right into there. Each one of our volumes, we've got three volumes, which are kind of collected information about playing in the Savage Age, have information and background uh, for storytellers and players alike in terms of how to approach the Savage Age to make it as, as playable as possible. And look, I, I'll tell every one of your, your listeners, and if I could look you in the eye, I'll say, um, we, we value and we respect you spending money with us. Um, and not everybody has a lot of money to, to be able to spend on storytellers' fault. So we really do try to put as much value into every one of our books um, that we can. And, and I think our reviews and the, the, the fandom that we've been able to, to generate um, has reflected that. I also want to give a shout out to the anthology that you've got um, uh, of, of stories um, that is part of this. You've, you've done a lot of different things that the, the World of Darkness has had a lot of touch points for. These are different ways you can use our media uh, to dive into the World of Darkness. And you're taking... The opportunity to uh, use many of those ideas in particular the Farah anthology uh, tales of the savage age like having that as a way of for people to just read some fiction and get a feel for the setting is really an awesome way of, of diving into it so i'm really uh, intrigued by the way you've created an entire ecosystem around the setting um, and the art uh, in particular, I want to say the art that you've gotten for these books has been fabulous. It's really top notch. Um, and one of the things that immediately catches my attention is the red and black and white uh, mm. elements that are parts of these covers. Like they stand out. They make you immediately know that this is a Savage Age book. And 
I am curious to find every bit of information I can out of these books by looking at the cover. So bravo. That is the, uh, the extent of my uh, uh, saying that all of that is fantastic stuff. Well, we, we, we really appreciate it. Appreciate it. And, I'll, and, I'll and we got it. Brandon. No, we got it. We got to praise you because uh, Brandon was the one that said we needed to put Tales of the Savage Age together. We need to, like you were just saying, Josh, hearing that is great. Now I'll, I'll stop. Go for it, Brandon. Oh, sorry. Uh, well, I mean, you let me do it, <laughs> but um, um, as far as the art, uh, Paul Way is our artist. He is the he provides all the amazing ink slinging and all the pretty pictures, and we appreciate him so much. Um, and, and as far as Tales of the Savage Age, um, that was that was so much fun to get to help put together, and we got. Uh, it's got 18 stories in it, and we managed to get um, not not only did our own team have a chance to kind of you know frolic in this little sandbox that Chris has made, we were able to, and this is the thing that that I'm happiest about. We got to give a lot of really really good new talents a chance to show off, and um, if you have perused the vault before, you'll probably see some names you recognize. Um, April Alsop, who did uh, rebook Mold Warps, is on there. Um, our team got to do a, a number of stories. Uh, we've got uh, prose and poetry, and and also, and this is something I want to emphasize. Uh, we make everything we do. We want you to be able to incorporate into your games in some way, whether it's taking inspiration from lifting wholesale. Every story in uh, Tales has an accompanying fetish talon or right inspired by it that's just ready out of the box to be put into a game so we want you to be able to get as much mileage out of this stuff as possible yeah and we wanted to take an opportunity where the stories don't stand on their own necessarily that they can be quickly integrated into your own stories and your own plot lines and here's this fetish and you can introduce it immediately um so we wanted like you said, Josh, this ecosystem, we wanted there to be a connection between these stories to not only give you ideas and to make players more comfortable with Savage Age, but then also, well, here's how you operationalize it. Um, and then Brandon mentioned something that I think is really important. We were, we're a collection of, of writers um, and enthusiasts behind Werewolf, uh, the Apocalypse. And, and we're just, we're looking for opportunities to kind of show off some of the real skills that Storytellers Vault has. Um, I conceptualized putting weaponized ink together. I'm a 20-year freelancer with a couple of, uh, of um, credits to my name. And, and I recognize how hard it is for a lot of people to start getting those first legitimate credits to their name, especially in, in role-playing. And I wanted to take this opportunity to build weaponized ink as a, an, um, as a place where up-and-coming writers and um poets and the whole gamut of individuals who enjoy um working with language to explore and to be paid for their work and eventually develop the um the credentials to the point where i can no longer afford to pay for them um everybody that writes for savage age um does get a salary we agree to a upfront cost um because i think that is the appropriate thing to do um, for writers, I think I think too many uh, role-playing game writers are criminally underpaid, and I've had the opportunity in some cases to be a paid, frankly, appropriately, and it feels really good. And so I'm trying to use weaponized ink as my way to pay back the community that got me here, the games that got me to where I am, and to to get to a point um, where some of these writers are going to be so good that I'm hoping at some point I can come to them and ask for a job. That is all stuff that I am immediately resonate with because I have been the first person to pay some freelancers in um, doing work for high level games. And I don't talk about high level games a lot, but they're one of the companies that I uh, produce RPG books through. And I, I will say, Chris, that the, the things you are saying, particularly make me excited and happy to hear because 
People uh, do need an opportunity, one, to get their work out there and be seen. And giving people that opportunity is always fulfilling. It always makes me feel like I'm doing something that's going to launch people to success. One of the people that I helped get their first writing assignment got an assignment for Wizards of the Coast. And I almost, you know, fell over backwards because it was like, what little I did helped get you the attention that you deserve to get to that place. So um, I, I applaud you for uh, your work in that particular area. And um, I want to say that Weaponize Inc. doesn't just uh, do things in the community content space. There are some other things that you're producing as well. Do you guys want to talk about those things? Sure. We've got um, right now the big one that we have is Hammer and the Stake, which we did a Kickstarter uh, about nine months ago for. Hammer and the Stake is um, set in the 1920s, 1923, give or take. So after the First World War, before the Second War, Eastern Europe, primarily uh, what we know now as Hungary and Romania. And at its core, it's um, socialist versus Dracula. And, uh, and yeah, that's where it is. We are in the final stages of the last bit of an edit, getting the very final bits of art together. Um, we already have a, uh, um, the worker's primer, which is all the core rules and some of the art already up on drive-through. And we're about to get the full manifesto is what we call it. So the full core book with all of the, the, the character options with all of the rules. It'll probably be up hopefully in the next two months. I hope I'm not going to bite my tongue over saying that, but um, it still has to go to layout. But the editing's basically done. Everything else is there. And then we're going to go to a full print option. Um, and for the for our Kickstarter backers, they're going to get a, a pretty sweet looking book. And then we'll make sure that it goes up for POD up on drive-thru. We've got a couple other IPs that we're potentially working on. The, the issue with us is to make sure that we don't become overwhelmed, mm -hmm. that um, that Savage Age, Hammer and the Stake um, get to good points before we start moving on to another project. For sure. That is a key thing that as an RPG industry folks, you need to make sure that you're not over committing yourself. Uh, having done so in the past, sometimes you like, <laughs> I can take on all these different jobs and you're like, Hey, maybe we shouldn't do that. But um, I'm particularly excited for the hammer and the stake because it looks like it's going to be a fun game. The premise is really interesting. Uh, and I was excited to be a Kickstarter backer for that. Um, is there a way for people to back that on like backer kit or anything like that still at this point? We haven't done backer kit yet. Um, and again, that actually gets to the point of too many things going on. Sure. Um, I want to get the core book out. Uh, I'm working very closely with Son of Oak, which is another, if you're familiar with City of Mist, um, they're going to be working on distribution for us. And then once we make sure that we've got all the books for our Kickstarter backers taken care of, then we will make sure that it is available to the general public. But my my intention right now is these people took a chance on me. That includes you, Josh. I got to do right by them first, and then I'll make sure that it's open to the larger public. But the PDF will be out there. Um, like I said, the worker's primer is already up on drive through. It's 10 bucks. It is absolutely worth it. There's some really cool art in there. I will humbly say, maybe not so humbly, the, <laughs> um, the, the mechanic behind hammer and stake is very different than you've explored. Um, than a lot of your listeners have been able to, it has more in line with blackjack, um, or roulette than a traditional, um, RPG resolution mechanic. And it was designed specifically so that multiple people are involved in every roll of the dice. I think that's one of the kind of really exciting things that that's part of where the socialism comes into it is instead of holding onto your own D20 and rolling and seeing if you, if you got a hit, um, one person at the table rolls the dice and everybody looks at that dice. If you've ever played Settlers of Catan, it's a little bit like that. One person gets to roll the dice and it impacts every player at the table slightly differently. That's the core mechanic behind uh, Hammer and Stake. And then I think we've got a really cool setting. Um, we've already got supplements that some of them are, are almost done. Some of the supplements may actually be done before the core book. Um, so once the core book drops, we're going to have a whole series of supplements, one on werewolves, um, another one on uh, anarcho-syndicalists. Um, we'll have another uh, by Kelly Black, which is going to be about the cryptocracy, which is the, the Dracula-led fascist government that rules uh, Hungary and Romania, uh, Najma Rajavag. Um, and, and yeah, so we've got this cool setting and we're going to explore it as far as we can. And so far, the reaction has been pretty positive. 
I really look forward to all of that stuff because uh, I, I haven't, I have so many things to read that I haven't dived deeply into the workers primer, but every time I open it, I go, this is neat. This is interesting. I want to read more uh, and just have to, to keep setting it aside and read other things. But um, same thing to be said for Savage Age. Like there are so many interesting ideas and concepts that I keep grabbing a book, reading a couple of pages and then not getting too deep into it. Um, but for folks that are interested in either of these things, like go on Storyteller's Vault, go on DriveThruRPG, find them. Uh, you can look for Weaponized Inc. or you can look for Savage Age and find these materials. Um, and I think you're really going to get a lot out of them. Um, particularly the Savage Age books have a couple of bundles. So if you want to pick up a few books and, and get a feel for what everything is about, you can do that from some really affordable bundles that have been put together. Um, so I recommend that people do that. Um, is there anything else that you two want to say or shout out before uh, we bring things to a close? I, uh, speaking of Kelly Black, I, I was just going to add that um, for any of you V5 fans out there, uh, we also have a book called Lupines Terry Not in Their Path, which is an update of a V20 book that Chris did, which introduces these are not Garu. These are, this is Lupines as an antagonist from the vampire perspective. So something more akin to like those first edition write-ups of when the kindred would talk about these monsters that dwell in the woods and on the road. So if you want to add a new kind of spooky antagonist uh, to your vampire game, uh, go give uh, Terry Knott and their path a look. Chris and Kelly did a great job on that. Hey, yeah. So here's here's the deal. Um, at uh, I'd like to offer to any one of your listeners out there. Um, we were just talking about Broken Brother and and how we're proud of it and how Brandon did an excellent job. Um, and if for whatever reason getting Broken Brother is is a barrier for you, something's going on. Email us at weaponizedinc at gmail um, Send me. Uh, a note that says you listened to this podcast uh, and we'll give you a free copy. No questions asked. Fantastic. And uh, I'm awesome. oh, sorry. I was just going to say, um, I handle a lot of our uh, marketing. So if anyone wants uh, updates on what we're up to, or just to see some pretty Paul way art or to watch him yell at me, if I don't post the highest resolution version possible, I'm over at Brandon M. Stewart on Twitter, and you can see uh, Chris's updates at the Weaponized Inc. Facebook page. Fantastic. Well, thank you both for, for coming on the show today and talking about your projects. I am uh, excited uh, to uh, talk about them. I, I'm glad that we finally got you on the show, and I hope folks check everything out. Uh, you can find some links that are going to be in the show notes, um, that, so hopefully you can uh, grab those if you want to uh figure out what we're talking about and find it really easily. Um, so until we finally get an answer to the question, when will you rage? We'll talk to you again next time.